I could tell that man and be like, do you have any idea where you are? Like, get the fuck away. Like, you're in a lesbian bar in San Francisco. There's dykes everywhere. There's lesbians. There's trans. There's gay men. Like, it was this beautiful space where I was given permission to, like, tell this straight dude to just fuck off. Welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules and go to the bar. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And that voicemail you just heard was from Unladylike listener Cassandra. She was one of many who answered a call that we put out for stories about favorite lesbian bars. So thank y'all. And the particular bar that Cassandra called us about was the Lexington Club. It was pretty much a queer institution in San Francisco, a magical-sounding place where you could safely tell straight guys to just fuck off. And that's actually where we're going for this episode, to that magical, teeny-tiny dive bar. The Lexington Club was the size of a postage stamp. I think also with the word club on the end, people often thought it would be maybe be bigger, but I think it's club in the very old school sense of the word, you know? Not like a, uh, 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 you know? <laughs> this is Leela Thurkeld, and that supremely unladylike postage stamp she opened and ran for 18 years is what got us thinking about America's lesbian bars to begin with. Yeah, because Caroline, I mean, we should mention that you and I are, one, straight, and two, we live in Atlanta, not terribly far from a lesbian bar. So we were legitimately stunned to discover that the Lexington Club was San Francisco's only lesbian bar when it closed in 2014. As in, America's queer capital is currently home to zero bars exclusively For queer women. Yeah, I mean, actually, same goes for Los Angeles, New Orleans, Chicago. And in 2016, Phase 1, which was one of America's longest-running lesbian bars, shut down in Washington, D.C. after 45 years. Which is wild and kind of worrying. Like, you and I had to learn more. So... In this episode, Leela is taking us to the Lexington because the story of San Francisco's last surviving lesbian bar has a lot to tell us about what's happening to similar neighborhood joints around the country. Along the way, we'll also hear from more unladylike listeners like Cassandra who've loved and lost their own queer cheerses. All to find out, why are lesbian bars disappearing? And what does it mean for communities when those near and dear watering holes dry up? So what's your go-to drink? If I'm out at a bar, I like to drink something like a Campari and soda because it's pretty low in alcohol and I can get it tall and like kind of nurse it all night. I'm a little older now than I was when I started all this. So my preference is like a slow-going, turtle-like move towards intoxication. (laughs) 
Leela's been a bar owner for most of her life, so she's got some knowledge about drinks and places to drink them. She loves a good dive bar, but says she never orders wine at one because, you know, she likes better wine than most dive bars have. I don't order wine at dive bars because the bartenders just look at me like I'm crazy. Yes, I feel too weird, honestly. (laughs) But before Leela was a Campari slow-sipping San Franciscan, she was a student at a tiny college amongst the Iowa cornfields. Her first gay bar experience was actually in Des Moines, and she told us it was nothing to write home about, something about pool tables. (laughs) But Leela was young and queer during the 80s and 90s, which was kind of a golden age of urban nightlife for lesbian and bi women. (laughs) Yeah, get this. There was a spot in New York called the Click Club, and I have a feeling it was really hard for guys to find. You know know what I mean? (laughs) And there was one particular trip back home to New York with her girlfriend where Leela got an invitation to basically the best night of her life. And this super, you know, that sort of 90s bleached blonde, short hair look, butch woman came up to me and my girlfriend and was like, hey, I'm bartending at a club tonight. It's called Dagger. Why don't you guys stop by? And being like just like melting into the floor. And, and melting into the floor with like joy or trepidation or what oh, kind like of puddle so of excited. I, I couldn't <laughs> even believe it. I, like, I was like, I, I was just blown away and, you know, thought she was super high and we were just swooning and so excited. And, and we went because we were like that eager, young. And, and, and it was like just full of gay women, and it was just amazing to be surrounded by that, just knowing that everybody in the room was also gay like me, whether they looked different from me or not, had an overwhelming level of, like, all these things at once, like comfort and desire. Um, It was very, very exciting. But then, of course, we sort of got back in the car and drove out to the Midwest, and and these interesting, cool things were never to be seen or heard from again for quite some time until we moved to San Francisco. Leela was part of a wave of queer women who migrated to San Francisco in the 80s and 90s. Many settled into the city's oldest neighborhood, the Mission District. It's on the other side of Dolores Park from the famous Gay Castro District, but was more affordable, which is probably hilarious to anyone listening to this in the mission today since the median rent for a one-bedroom is more than $3,600. But 25 years ago, it was the neighborhood for someone like Leela looking to mix and mingle with her people. The scene in the mission was just amazing. I mean, there was a lot of stuff. There was a lot of, like, female-centered stuff, too. There was, like, some, some bookstores like Modern Times, Good Vibrations was there, which is like was like a gay sort of women-run sex shop. There was um, Ascento, which was a women's bathhouse. So there was a lot of stuff in the mission, and it was where all the dykes lived. And um, I think in the 90s, primarily, we were using the word dyke. It was just awesome. Like, you could walk out of your apartment and walk two blocks and just run into, like, a bunch of hot dykes like every day and it was like a dream it was awesome (laughs) and people were really into eating brunch but that seems like that's always the case but I don't know I felt like there was a lot of brunch back then and people were also kind of into spoken word and stuff like that 
Back then, the mission wasn't just lesbians and brunch. It was also a lot of Latino immigrant families, musicians. The whole neighborhood was artsy, diverse, and collaborative. Leela felt right at home. In the daytime, at least. There was no place at night that for gay women every day. And that was the biggest thing, is that I would hear being in bars like and seeing people, oh, I wish there was just this one place we could go to. There was a lot of one-off parties. And then there was a, the Bearded Lady Cafe. It was a, a cafe. They closed at like 8 o'clock. So it was mainly a daytime hangout. But it was like this super like queer punk rock hangout. And it was really awesome. But really, my thing was, like, I was always a bar person. Like, I didn't love to go to clubs. Like, I liked to be able to have conversations. I wasn't big into, like, dancing and stuff. I just kind of like sitting around drinking beers with my friends and, like, chatting all night, you know. And everybody kind of went to their little neighborhood bars, but there was no one centralized place. Leela had a friend from college who'd opened her own bar, and she started thinking, hey, if my friend can do this, maybe I could too. I was like, I want to create the place where I want to be, you know? Like, what if this bar, this, like, divey, like, bar in the mission was just filled with women, you know? Like, I was like, that would be awesome. Can we do that? So what do you do when your queer field of dreams doesn't exist? If you're 25-year-old Leela in the 90s, you make like Kevin Costner and just build it. Because they will come. I mean, when we open the doors... We were busy, like from the first, like from the first night. You know, it never stopped, and it was just so obvious that that space was needed. Um, so I think that that idea that our community could have a place to go at any time was really, really awesome. Where did the name come from? Oh, the name was already there. There's a very small street that only goes for a couple blocks that's called Lexington, and so. Um, The bar was on the corner of Lexington and 19th, so it was named for the street. And um, I had been told that it had that name for a very long time, and the sign was pretty old and cool. So it felt appropriate to just keep it and then just change the identity. She did change the identity, but not all of the decor. It had, like, double doors on the corner, so you kind of walked in, and there was a pool table and a really big... um, mahogany bar that kind of went the length of the wall uh, with these two columns. And so that was kind of cool. But it was pretty divey. The walls were red, sort of famously red. And I don't know if people, if people were like sexy or womb-like or I don't really know what <laughs> where, where, where things went with that. But one time I thought about changing the color. People lost their minds and I didn't. <laughs> but um, the bathrooms were sort of famously known for their graffiti. It was pretty exciting. So exciting, local artists would sometimes ask Leela if they could tag a spot. One friend spent a whole afternoon on a mini mural in there. It was this very, like, elegantly painted uh, thing, and it said, don't shit where you eat. The Lex even became kind of a destination bar. Tourists from everywhere would stop by. And the neighborhood regulars kind of liked having the out-of-towners come through, you know, mix things up. Hello, sexy strangers. There was a lot of cruising going on. I think there was a lot of people trying to pick up a lot of people, and it had kind of a fun energy in that way. The collaborative vibe of the mission really rubbed off on Leela. She consciously set out to create a space that was more than a bar. 
Inspired by the Bearded Lady Cafe, she wanted to open the kind of place where she and her friends wanted to hang out, sure, but could also support a thriving, inclusive community in the process, starting with who was slinging the drinks. One thing that I was proud of is we did a lot of hiring people without experience because we wanted people from our community to be behind the bar so that when somebody walked in, they could be like, oh, that's one of us, you know? And so, you know, the way it works in the world is that, you know, a young, pretty woman might get hired at a restaurant or a bar and get trained. And somebody that's like, you know, a diesel dyke in 1998 is probably not going to get hired and trained at anywhere. Um, so I was I was pretty um, excited to kind of do that and make sure throughout the years that we were sort of bringing people into our community behind the bar that we would try to reflect as our um, clientele in the bar. We've come across a lot of quotes and comments from people who have said just how important the Lex community was to them. So from your position, how did you go about creating that community? Or was it really just an issue of like, hey, y'all, here's the neighborhood bar. Come on in. Yeah, I think that there was a lot more um, conscious effort than that. I think that um, there were so many things. I mean, it, it, it was really everything from... You know, we never closed over the holidays, um, and we would lose money every year, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas and stuff. But the idea that our space was there for people, even if it was two people, like, was really important. And I think that that instilled a certain feeling and sense of things in people and felt like we were there not just to make money, which was clear for a long time, but <laughs> but um, but but as as really more, uh, something bigger than that. Um, I think that a huge thing too was like being really open and welcome to the trans community. Um, that was a really big thing for the Lexington Club at a time when that was really contentious. And I I, I mean that in terms of um, F to M, like female to male, but also um, M to F. Like there was a time where the Transgender Film Festival in its early days couldn't find a place to have an after party. And we were like, we would be happy to have you guys, you know, like as simple as that. I mean, I feel almost like this sense of like, queerness happening in the Lexington Club and people transitioning and becoming comfortable with that and having art shows where a photographer where trans photographers showed work of um trans people and we would show those shows like over pride where people from all over the country would come in the bar and we would do that on purpose because it's like hey this is our community and we accept it and I think that that was a really we thought all about that a lot. There was a lot of intention there. This spirit of inclusivity even extended to the types of people you're probably least likely to find in a lesbian bar. Straight cisgender dudes. Leela says of the Lexington was not the kind of dyke bar that would turn away folks who weren't woman or lesbian enough. Because, first of all, you can never know another person's situation. And second, she didn't want to make people feel crappy. Sometimes customers felt didn't want men in there, and but we never. It was never 
the policy of the bar, you know? Because um, mm-hmm. I've heard people say, oh, men aren't allowed in there about the Lexington Club when it was open. And I was like, that's bullshit. I own it. The Lexington was around for almost 20 years, so we could honestly just go on and on about the community it built over that time. Yeah, like how for a little while they'd open early once a week to provide meeting space for the Lusty Lady Sex Worker Union. And how they also hosted the first lesbian-centric events for the legendary leather and BDSM festival, the Folsom Street Fair. There was a a heavy decorating committee for a while that was... (laughs) You know, there was, I think for one of the Folsom parties, we built a giant, like, 12-foot by 6-foot ass with a hand coming and slapping it that we hung and installed from the ceiling. Like, I mean, you know, things like this and... Oh, God, I want to be on the decorating committee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was incredible. pretty fun. You know, it was just, it was sort of a little bit ridiculous. Like, the, those parties were probably too big to be throwing in that space. But it was just our thing, and we'd do it a few times a year, and it was a blast. Why do you think that it, it there hadn't been a space like that until the Lex opened? Well, I mean, there had. There just hadn't been in a long time, you know, right? Like, like there still were many, there was a time when there were many lesbian bars in San Francisco. Um it's just very difficult to – I don't know why there wasn't any for so long. I don't know what the answer to that exact question is, but there certainly hadn't been. Caroline, I think Leela had a hard time answering that question, partly because the history of these spaces has been so hidden and sort of fraught in a lot of ways. Also, it's time for the sad trombone that we all knew was coming because – Even though the Lexington Club was the only bar of its kind in San Francisco, Leela wasn't able to keep it open forever. She closed the doors for good in 2014. When we come back, we'll reveal some of that hidden history to find out what's helped lesbian bars thrive and contributed to their dive. With some help from all of you. Hey, my name's Lucas. I live in Brooklyn, and I'm calling to talk about the Lexington Bar in San Francisco. I loved that bar when I lived there, and it was basically the place where I discovered my identity. Is that crazy to say? And when it closed, it was honestly devastating. So R.I.P. Lexington. R.I.P. Lexington, indeed. We're back, and we're trying to figure out where the heck all the lesbian bars have gone. Yeah, and we heard from a lot of callers, like Lucas, who missed the Lex in particular. But it's just one bar that's closed. I mean, in just the last few years alone, Sisters in Philadelphia, Tease Bar in Chicago, and the Egyptian Club in Portland, all long-running lesbian bars closed. And our unladylike callers also had a lot of ideas about why that might be. Hey there, my name is Morgan. I live in New York. Um, I am calling about the Disappearing disappearing Lesbian Bar storyline. As I've discussed this with my friends many, many times and um, have a, a fairly good theory on it. My name is Christy. I live in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, we used to have a really great 
lesbian bar called Tootsie's that everybody loved. Unfortunately, it was like a whole bunch of swingers. That, like people started coming, like couples, like straight couples started coming to try to pick up girls. And so it just killed the place. Hi, my name is Caroline and I live in Baltimore. I don't go to the lesbian bars in Baltimore unless it's my birthday, my best friend's birthday, or it's gay pride. And I'd literally just rather meet lesbians on Facebook groups or on Autostraddle or on Tinder. I don't know. Um, I do think the problem with lesbian bars is that there's no support for them. Like, with all of the people that I know, they like to go out every now and then. They don't go out regularly. They don't go out every night and all the time. And so it's just not financially feasible. I think the times have changed, but the bars are closing anyway. Um, and we got to find other ways to find our community. Kristen, after hearing from all these listeners, what really struck me was how the reasons that lesbian bars are closing are numerous and complicated. Totally. And we are going to break down a few of the main reasons we've discovered in just a sec. But first, we got to take a cue from Caroline. Me? No. Caroline in Baltimore. I've come to appreciate lesbian bars more recently because I've been reading a lot of like historical lesbian fiction, like Stone Butch Blues and A Persistent Desire, which is a book by Joan Nessel. And it's just an um, anthology of different Bush and Femme stories. And a lot of them take place in gay bars because that's where these two different kinds of women could go to meet each other in the 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever. But with the police presence, it was a really unsafe place to be, and they really, like, struggled for everything that they had there. Baltimore Caroline is right. To better understand what's happening with lesbian bars right now, we need to know more about their history. What a great jumping-off point to unpack some claptrap. Unpack the Claptrap is a part of the show where we unshake capitalist patriarchy's cocktail of nonsense to find out why things are the way they are. And in this case, we want to know more about where lesbian bars in America came from and why they're an endangered species today. The history of lesbian bars and other hangouts is definitely tangled up in the larger history of queer spaces. Part of that is because plenty of the early hidden spots, speakeasies, house parties, and private dance nights simply never made it onto the record. But also gay men and women often went to the same parties, clubs, and bars so they could be one another's cover if the cops busted in. San Francisco's first lesbian nightclub, called Mona's 440, opened in 1934. It quickly became known for featuring male impersonators and queer showstoppers like blues singer Gladys Bentley, who wore a signature tuxedo. And then the real watershed moment came in the 1940s. Like, we're all familiar with what World War II did for women's jobs, but have you ever thought about lesbian bars in that context? I had not previously, Caroline, no. Well, I mean, the men are gone, more women are coming into big cities for work. And for the first time, you have enough queer women to keep them in business. And while the lesbian-centric bars of the 40s weren't really a hotbed of political consciousness raising yet, they were still important spaces where women could be themselves and find their people, you know? 
Plus, in the 40s and 50s in San Francisco, sure, you could go to Mona's 440, or you could go to actually lesbian-owned bars like Our Club, Miss Smith's Tea Room, and my personal fave, The Anxious Asp, whose bathroom walls were papered with the Kinsey Report. And speaking of Kinsey... As the sexual revolution and civil rights movement began bubbling up in the 50s and 60s, queer bars became more contentious spaces. Out of the bars and into the streets was Harvey Milk's famous gay rights rallying cry. But not everyone was on the same page. Some lesbian organizations, like the Daughters of Belitis, wanted women to get out of the bars, but not in order to start a radical revolution. Yeah, they thought assimilation and respectability were the keys to tolerance. But on the other hand, you also had way more politically radical lesbians who thought heterosexist respectability and basically being ladylike was bullshit. Like, especially for butch and more masculine identifying lesbians. And Caroline, we could do a whole other episode just on dyke bars. But there were bars that did take on a more separatist and some would today say transphobic approach to protecting their territory. Yeah, I mean, we heard from an unladylike listener named Morgan that she was actually asked to leave the first lesbian bar she went to because they said she looked too feminine to be gay. Yikes. But... The good news is that the LGBTQ revolution did happen inside and outside the bars. By the 2000s, mainstream America was singing along to Katy Perry's I Kissed a Girl and watching Safer Daytime Ellen. Like, these days, going to a lesbian bar feels like no big deal. If you can find one. According to gay travel guide Dameron, out of about 1,300 LGBTQ-specific bars around the world, only 36 are specifically lesbian spaces. And that was in 2017, so we might have even fewer left now. So, Kristen, how did we get here? Well, Caroline, I'll answer you with a joke. Gender trouble and gentrification walk into a bar. And? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's as far as I got. Because because seriously, gender trouble and gentrification are the two things that come up over and over again, not only in what we've heard from listeners, but also our research on why so many lesbian bars have closed. Okay, so let's start with gender, specifically the wage gap. You know, we know that women at large earn less money than men, which means less cash for happy hour. And less time, especially if you have to hoof it home to the suburbs to take care of the kids. Because according to 2013 data, around half of queer women under 50 are raising children versus a fifth of queer men. And let's say you're able to get a babysitter and lift it out of the burbs to party. Well, women tend to drink less and therefore spend less than men when we go out. For lesbian bar owners, that adds up to kind of a tricky business model. Which brings us back to our bar owner, Leela, and the Lexington Club. Leela says the gender stuff sticks out to her when you compare her lesbian bar to the gay bars around the corner. I felt it in ways where you can get a lot of support from certain organizations or even liquor companies or whatever to put on events and do different things. And I saw a lot of the gay male bars getting that support, and we really never got reached out to. And I mean, partly it's our size, right? Because people are like, oh, there's one tiny small place or there's like the whole Castro, you know? And I get it. Like, it's a numbers game. Like, I'm I'm in business too, you know? But at the same time, like, we didn't get that kind of support, whether it was sort of like financial or promotional or a partnership way. That was something that came very rarely to us. 
The other gender thing I think is important to mention is social media and dating apps. Like, a lot of folks we heard from said that lesbians don't necessarily need bars to meet women today because they can meet them on Tinder or find friendly meetups through social. Which, yeah, I mean, that's true. But if you want to go on a date, you're still going to need a spot to go. Leela says she and her bartenders saw plenty of Tinder dates in the Lexington all the time. Okay, so gender and maybe a dash of social media might steer us away from the bar. But the bigger factor here is gentrification. That's actually the number one reason Leela says the Lexington struggled. You know, at one point, all my bartenders lived in San Francisco and pretty much even in the neighborhood. And within a year, there was only, like, one person still living in San Francisco. They all had moved to Oakland. And that's how, like, swift the displacement was. I mean, that's just, like, an example, right, for our larger community. People were evicted. People lost their homes due to fires. Um, People were pushed out with buyouts. A lot happened. And rents were so – were rising so fast that communities that – are more marginalized, couldn't afford to stay. As the Lexington was growing up, so was Silicon Valley. Starting in the early 2000s, you have tech bros starting to move into the mission and onto the Lex's turf. Cue property values increasing with luxury condos, fancy eateries. Suddenly, it's a lot harder to afford rent, especially if you're a bartender at the Lexington or a patron in the neighborhood we weren't getting as many people through the door. Like, the weekends were great because people would come in from Oakland, but during the week, nobody lived there anymore, you know? And it was hard. When I really knew that I was going to have issues was when I got a letter from my landlord saying, we're breaking your lease. You no longer have the five years left that you were promised. We've found a loophole. We're doubling your rent, and you're now on a 30-day lease. What? Damn, 30 days? Like, 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 I mean, like, month to month, sorry. Like, a month to month lease. Well, still. So the whole thing about a month to month lease is that they can raise the rent at any, every month if they want, right? So it's basically like, you're fucked. And that's when I was like, this, it's very possible that the Lux is not long for this world because they don't want me here. So did you get the sense that this was something that was unique to your situation at the Lex or that other queer bars in San Francisco were also getting the squeeze? This is something that was rampant throughout the city with every small business. And it was being talked about and it was in the news like every other day. It it was crazy. And it was hitting the more marginalized communities first, I think, because they didn't have the financial power or the 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 clientele, the volume to support a lot of those financial increases, right? So like, you know, if you're a straight bar, you have access to every single person in the city you want in your doors. But if you're like a queer women's bar, what is it, like 5% of the city? And how many of those people are like shacked up and married and have kids? So I don't know. It's like we're talking about a pretty small pool, you know? Um, we were seeing it, like there was a really wonderful um, – place that was called Esta Noche, not far away from the Lex, that was a Latina drag bar. And it was super, been around for a really long time. And they shut down shortly before we did. And so you were sort of seeing it in these more sort of margins of that, of the queer community, but you were seeing it with everything. 
Leela's right. Gentrification hits marginalized groups hardest and first. By 2013, nearly a third of the city's homeless population identified as LGBTQ. And research suggests that being a queer woman tends to come with more displacement. Meanwhile, cisgender gay guys are more likely to buy and own real estate, earn more money than cis lesbians, and they're likelier to form lasting gayborhoods like the Castro and support their gayborhood bars. And we're not just seeing the gentrification effect in San Francisco. I mean, sure, Silicon Valley is a pretty stark example, but this is happening all around the country. Look at Norfolk, Virginia. Just last month, the Hershey Bar closed its doors. It was one of the East Coast's oldest lesbian joints. Yeah, the city is planning a, quote, revitalization for the business district the bar was in. And that building where the Hershey Bar was is currently slated to be raised and replaced with a dog park. But here's the thing about gentrification. It's really, really complicated, and it's a force that's hard to stop. I mean, when lesbians moved into the Mission District in San Francisco in the 90s, they were also gentrifiers, affecting families of color who'd already been there. Gentrification comes in waves. And in October 2014, the wave came for the Lex. Leela knew, though, that they'd have to go out with a bang. She made sure to throw a kick-ass party with people getting up on the pool table to recount their favorite Lexington memories. And remember a listener, Cassandra, from the very top of the show? She actually flew back from New York for the party. And y'all, she is not pleased about the new bar that's popped up in the Lexington's place. And now it is a really horrible, bougie wine bar. And I refuse to go in because it's just a bunch of straight people. And I fucking hate it. (laughs) That would be so anti-straight, but it it really, it's really sad. The Lexington was solely women constantly, and, and it was great. And those were the good old days. So what does it mean for communities when watering holes like the Lex dry up? We'll figure that out when we come back. lesbian bars as we've known them are disappearing. And we know some of the big reasons why. But where does that leave us, Kristen? Like, what do we lose? Well, I think it's safe to say that when a spot like the Lexington closes, folks lose not just a lesbian bar, but really the community site. I mean, we heard Leela tell us about all the ways that the Lex gave back beyond just being a spot where, you know, maybe you could get tipsy or even wasted. Totally. And I also think that folks lose something really personal. Like, take listener Leslie. She called in to tell us about the lesbian bar she loved and lost in St. Louis, Missouri. Hi there. My first and all-time favorite bygone lesbian bar was called Novax, and it was a 10-minute drive from my apartment in St. Louis. So I came out my junior year in college, and I didn't really hit my lesbian stride until my senior year when I was finally 21 and starting to get comfortable with my gayness. Um, I spent nearly every weekend at Novax. There was a sizable dance floor. There was a DJ that would take your drunken musical requests well into the night. I probably requested walk it out and get me bodied more times than I can count. I just, I really loved being a regular somewhere, especially somewhere where I felt welcome and safe. Um, And I think more than anything, Novax really helped guide my new queerness and it allowed me to try out a lot of new things 
on my way to figuring out how to be gay and to be black and to be an adult woman um, in my early 20s. Um, I think it was a place that I really needed at that particular time in my life. So, Nancy Novak, if you're listening, your bar changed my life. What Leslie's talking about is so personal. Like, her identity is kind of fused with this place. I mean, and that's something that you hear a lot, too, of these being spots where people kind of come to find themselves. Yeah, and so I think when places like that disappear, it's easy to feel like you've lost a little part of yourself. Do you miss the Lex? Yeah, I miss it. I do. I I, I mean, there's nothing... There's really nothing that was like it, and I think that it will ever be like it. I mean, it's very hard to lose something that I spent most of my life building and participating in in a public way, you know, in a way, in, in, in such a public environment. And um, it, it's, I think I'm still getting over it. You know, to be honest, I think I'm still working on it, still going to therapy for that. You know, it was amazing. And so much I got to do so much cool shit and I got to learn so much. And it's just like one of the best things that's ever happened to me. But I really shouldn't even say happened to me because it's something that I did. It didn't just happen to me, you know. When it ended, there was such a huge outpouring of love, and it was just mind-blowing. Like, people coming up to me in the street and being like, I know you don't know me, but I met my wife at the Lex, like, 10 years ago. (laughs) And me just being like, oh, my God. And they were like, we're together because you had that bar. It really was, I think, likened to – a, a boozy community center, you know, and <laughs> and <laughs> a dirty boozy community center, and I, I, and I'm really proud of that. And Caroline, I think that's a good segue to our last question, which is: Is there anything to gain by losing these spaces? I think one thing folks do gain is the potential for new spaces that can welcome a whole new generation of queer people. And we're using the term queer intentionally because younger women are likelier to self-identify as queer today than lesbian, since it's considered a more gender-inclusive term. And Leela owns one of these new spaces. A couple of years before the Lex closed, she started another bar. It's called Virgil's Sea Room, which, great name, and it's definitely no Lexington club. But it is an inclusive and welcoming bar for all kinds of folks. And she still makes an effort to hire a diverse staff and admittedly... Owning a place that caters to a broader section of the population is a lot easier when it comes to running the books. It's divey, but it's a little more upscale divey. Um, And I think that's more of a a reflection of who I am as I've gotten a little bit older, too, you know. Um, (laughs) You're you're upscale divey. (laughs) Yeah, that's me. But Virgil's is just one place. There are actually lots of queer-specific spaces and events being created right now. From two new lesbian-specific bars in the D.C. area to the new women's space in Brooklyn, which is an event space, not a bar, that hosts all kinds of queer and woman-focused workshops and in-person meetups. That's so cool. And also nice that there are spaces not revolving around alcohol. Leela says, too, there have been some events in San Francisco in recent years that have kind of blown her mind. Like Hard French, which she says is sort of like this daytime soul party with 
an incredibly diverse reach. You know, this makes me think of something that Leela said to us in our interview. Basically, she gets kind of irked anytime someone calls the Lexington the last lesbian bar in San Francisco. It sort of drives me nuts because when I was when I started it, there hadn't been one for like six or seven years. So the last one already came. You know what I mean? Like it's going to happen again. There's going to be it, it. It's not. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't the last one. The Lexington Club was the only lesbian bar in San Francisco. It's not like there were 15 open all at once and, you know, they all closed in a cascade ending with the Lex. So can you be the last if you're the only one standing? Yeah, like hearing Leela say this kind of flipped my perspective, Caroline, because if the Lex isn't the last, then that means there's room for a next bar or better yet, bars plural. And maybe they'll look a little different from old-school lesbian bars like the Lexington Club, and maybe that's okay. Really, I I want spaces for people to be able to explore themselves, and I really want women to be in positions where they can open businesses. And, you know, I'm sitting here in this studio right now that's with these women, and it's amazing, and they're running this studio, and... It's so rad that I get to come in here and work with you guys and work with them. And I think we need to do everything we can. The whole reason why I would even talk about this is just the idea that we're talking more about getting to a place where women have more responsibility and be doing more things in the things that they want to be doing in their lives. And that's really, really important to me. Everything you've got Taking a break from all your worries Sure would help a lot Wouldn't you like to get away And y'all, we've only scratched the surface of this. There are tons of amazing art projects, oral histories, and collectives out there run by queer women documenting lesbian bars across the country. And we'll link to those projects on our website, unladylike.co. Now, we want to know from you... What is the future of lesbian bars? Tell us, what do you think? Wherever you live, if there's a neighborhood queer bar that you love, loathe, or wish existed, we're all ears. Also, listeners outside the U.S., have lesbian bars been vanishing in your neck of the woods? Holler at hello at unladylike.co or find us on social at unladylikemedia. Y'all, it's the holidays, so we know you're trying to figure out the perfect gift for all the unladies in your life. And that's why we did you a solid and talked to E.R. Anderson, who runs our favorite Atlanta feminist bookstore, Karis Books. E.R.'s got ideas about books that make great gifts and ways to give without feeling so consumeristic this year. To find this awesome bonus episode, sign up for Stitcher Premium at stitcher.com slash premium. Use the code unladylike for a month of free listening. Abigail Keel is a senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Julie Subrin's our editor. Ash Sanders and Abigail Barr transcribe our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Ami Macon, and Sarah Tudson. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radlett. Special thanks to Women's Audio Mission, the only women-built and run studio and nonprofit. They recorded Leela in San Francisco. 
And we're your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. Next week is our last episode of season three, y'all. And we're going out on a high note. Or more like an O note. You know, what if we just all protested by using vibrators and we're like, we're not going to sleep with you guys until you give us equal rights. I mean, at least we'll be reliably orgasming. (laughs) Do not miss this episode, y'all. Subscribe to Unladylike wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. Well, everybody knows your name. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. And they're always glad you came. That's a pun because we were talking about lesbian bars <laughs> and the click club, too. Someone make the anxious ass happen. Stitcher. <laughs>